If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Guys, I'm so excited to have our guest today, Jimmy Hinton. He actually was a speaker at a conference where Mary and I were speaking in Pennsylvania a few years ago. And was it was the first time I'd heard of you, Jimmy. But then ever since then, I hear about you all the time. <laughs> I know that you've been um, just, you know, you've had had such a voice in the sexual abuse advocacy world, but also just um, with an organization that I highly respect, Grace. Yeah. The Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. We had Boz on the podcast a while back, and that was a really popular one. Mm-hmm. And just talking about, you know, abuse in the church and what we can do about it. And I really do want to unpack that with you as well, Jimmy, because your story just really coincides with the fact that abuse happens in plain sight in the church. And what are we supposed to do about that? And and, and how do we create safe churches? What does a safe church even look like? Um, so those are a lot of things I really wanted to talk with you about today. Like I said, I know you've been to a lot of conferences, you're speaking a lot, you're blogging, you're, you have a, a big following on social media, because honestly, I think you're pretty frank about this issue. And and I, I respect that in you. And, um, and I'm glad also to hear a man, a man who comes from a church, a man mm-hmm. who, am I right that you're a pastor also i am yep full time yes so all of those things but to be such um a voice on this issue and to not shy away from it i mean that it's such a need in in our culture today and i know i'm not the only survivor who would just want to thank you um so thank you for that and thanks for being here so jimmy would you mind just maybe starting out just sharing your story and, and and we'll go from there sure i was born and raised in pennsylvania I grew up in uh, Shanksville. My wife and I lived in Arkansas, and we moved up to Pennsylvania in 2000. It was 2007, uh, the year that I graduated. And Pennsylvania was supposed to be just kind of a stopping place till we figured out what we were going to mm-hmm. do. And ironically, we moved to Pennsylvania um, back to my hometown uh, because my mom and dad had just separated. And I, I was incredibly close to my dad, uh, who also was, was a pastor at the church where I'm at now. Right, right. Uh, he preached there for 27 years. Okay. Um, so we had moved up here, and um, he actually moved in with us right away, with my wife and I. And uh, he lived with us for two years. And then 2009, um, I got hired in the middle of the year uh, at the church, mm-hmm. at, which I was not looking for. And it just, you know, through a whole bunch of circumstances, I wound up there. And two years later, in July of 2011, my youngest sister, uh, who was 21 at the time, she came into me um, one day on a Friday, and and she disclosed that when she was very little, she'd been sexually abused by him. Oh, and that by was your the father. first ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. So, you know that that was the first ever that 
we had heard any allegations of abuse and had never suspected that he was abusing mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the outside, everything looked normal, fine. He was, you know, the spiritual leader. Everyone looked up to him. I read in an article one time that absolutely there were other women in the church that told your mom, I wish my husband was like yours. Like, you know, he mm-hmm. was he was the adored person. So no one would have suspected yeah. it. And when your sister shared this with you, you must have been just in shock. Did you believe her right away? I, was, I did. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people ask me about that, why I was so quick to believe her. Mm. And, you know, I know it sounds I know it sounds really cliche, but um, I don't mean it to sound that way. But, you know, I tell people like literally the only explanation that I can have is that was the Holy Spirit working. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I was incredibly close to my dad. I mean, I'm number six of 11 kids. And out of all 11 of us, I was the only one who went into ministry. And I went into ministry because of him. Wow. You know, we were very, very close. So, you know, this was this was out of the clear blue. Yeah. And I believed her immediately. Mm. I mean, immediately mm. I believed her. Yeah. And I told her so. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I told her, you know, when she was in my office, of course, um, you know, she was just devastated. She was crying. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure what's going to happen from here. Um, and I had, I mean, a million different scenarios running through my head and none of them were good. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, once, once you hear that news and she, she came to me, not just to tell me she came because she expected something to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people need to realize. Victims don't talk about abuse just because, um, they just want to talk about it and get it off their chest. You know, they expect people to protect them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one reason you know, why I, many of us don't tell is because we're afraid that they're, you know, someone's going to do something. We, we know that that is what should happen. And sometimes that's scary because we don't know what that's going to mean yeah. for us. But at the same time, we right. know that's the right response is for that person to do something to stop it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And you know, I, I told her in, um, in that moment when she told me, I said, I don't know, I have no idea what's going to happen from here on out. I, you know, I mean, it is, <laughs> it is anybody's guess, but I said, one thing that I can tell you is that it stops now. Mm. And I said, I, I will do everything to stop that man because she suspected that he was abusing, um, other minor children, which we found out very quickly that he was, <sighs> um, and you know, I, I mean, we're talking, this was an hour. She told, she disclosed this to me an hour before I had to do a wedding rehearsal for one of my church members. And so, you know, you can imagine the range of emotions. And then the next day I did, I did the wedding, which was on Saturday and we were sitting at a round table and my wife was to my left, my sister to my right, who disclosed to me. And then my dad was sitting across from us. I mean, we're all literally sitting at the same table and I just, I felt, I felt sick to the stomach. I mean, absolutely sick. And I knew I was going to be reporting them uh, on Monday to our local police department. Mm. And, um, you know, and then Sunday, um, I had to preach and I look out and there sits my sister and right beside her sat my dad. And I mean, I just felt I felt sick to the stomach and I felt so horrible for her. Yeah. And, you know, and it's just, there's so many emotions that hit you all at once. Um, and I called my mom up that weekend and I, and I said, 
you know, I know that Alex was talking to you and I know that, you know, at least some of this information. And I said, you know, exactly what you and I need to do. And I still remember, she said, I know, she said, I'll be there with you when, when we report. Wow. You know, and, and I look at that and, and I look back and I'm like, man, we didn't even question that. And I didn't know at the time that I was a mandated reporter. I mean, this was all pre Jerry Sandusky. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, I had no idea that I was a mandated reporter as a, as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tell people like, it's, it's really important to know that I didn't report that. And mom didn't report that because, you know, we knew it was the law and we, you know, there would be all kinds of penalties if we didn't report we reported because we we saw no other option in front of us and we had to find the truth and we had to protect my sister and we had to protect um current victims if he had any right and uh, like i said we found out that that he had multiple victims he was abusing up to the time of his arrest mm-hmm. yeah i had read so, some of you know, that then, and even like taking photos and and i still mm-hmm, don't understand how mm-hmm. this man was having young children spending the night with him. How was that? Where yeah, were well, his he, parents? He had, yeah, he had taken advantage of, uh, that's a heartbreaking story in itself. And the father has spoken very publicly. He's given me permission to talk about this publicly. So I'm not betraying yeah. any confidence by talking about mm-hmm. this. His name is Dave. And, uh, you know, he's spoken at several events that I've done locally. Okay. And um, he's just an incredible man. The very first Sunday that he met my dad is the first Sunday that he had gone to church. Mm. This man was completely broken. Um, His wife had been physically abusing the kids. He grew up in a very violent home, and he had vowed that the cycle of abuse would stop with him. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, he ends up marrying this lady. They have, um, I think they had five kids together. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he, he had found out. Uh, because one of his daughters had disclosed to him that his wife had been beating the living tar out of them. And, you know, he, he reported it. She winds up in jail and this man was just desperate. I mean, mm. he was absolutely, I he was see. broken. Yeah. Um, he felt like a failure as a father. Mm. Uh, you know, he talked talked about not being able to protect his kids. Um, he talked about this cycle of abuse continuing on. Mm. So, you know, he, he, to my knowledge, was not a religious man. Mm -hmm. And he showed up to church at a church uh, just one block from where I'm at. It's one of our sister congregations here in in town. And my dad was going to church both where I, where I am now and uh, over at this church across the block. Mm -hmm. The very first Sunday that Dave showed up to church, he said the very first person who introduced himself was my dad. Mm -hmm. And he said he, he all but climbed over the pews to get to him. And he's like, it's as if he saw me a mile away and knew exactly what my vulnerabilities were. Oh. And he came up, he introduced himself and he said, Hey, you know, I'm John. Mm. And, um, you know, Dave introduced himself and my dad said, Hey, is there a, um, is there a missus? In other words, you know, do, wow. are you married? Yeah. Dave told his story. My dad starts talking about, he wants to be a spiritual mentor for Dave. And he's like, you know, you're really in a bad place right now you really need somebody to help walk you through this because you can't do it alone, especially as a single father. Mm. And so he, he buddied up to Dave, I mean, immediately and any walls that would have been there just came tumbling down. Mm -hmm. I mean, immediately. So, you know, and ironically the day that the detective knocked on the door 
to, to inform Dave that his kids had been abused by my father was the same day that um, CYS children and youth was signing off on, um, on all the custody issues and, you know, everything that had happened with the physical abuse. So when he got a knock on the door, he was actually excited. He thought it was CYS mm. and he opened the door and it was a police officer. Mm. And he said, he said his heart just sank. And he said, I, I just knew, he said, I knew in that moment what it was about. Right. He said, I just felt it. Mm-hmm. So terrible. yeah. And, but anyway, his kids, mm-hmm. his kids are the ones who are spending the night yeah. over at my dad's apartment yeah. okay. because he would come in and, you know, he was going to give them a break and, yeah. you know, he was going to help them out. And, mm-hmm. It's just a heartbreaking story. And, um, you know, I've gotten very close to the families of the victims. And, I mean, my heart still just shatters for them. Wow. And so you went ahead and you reported your father, going Mm -hmm. back to your sister's story. And what was the aftermath there? And, and, you know, how did did the community respond? How did your dad, what was the, the whole process there? I know that you didn't want to let him know in advance that he was going to be reported because you knew he would try to clean up and you wanted all the evidence there, which was smart on your part. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I didn't want him to know that I had anything to do with reporting. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the detective happened, happens to be a really good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I drove truck with, uh, with her cousin, um, I'd performed the, the, the officiated the wedding for both of her nephews, you know, really close to the family. And so, mm-hmm. um, I reported it and it just happened to be in her jurisdiction mm-hmm. and she's the sex crimes detective for our local police department. Mm-hmm. Um, so she called him in for questioning and she called me up and I'll never forget it. And I mean, she's been in this department for decades mm-hmm. and I mean, she's done a lot of really horrific sex crimes and she was crying when she called me oh, and yeah. she said, Jimmy, I, I just need to prepare you. She said, um, there are way more victims than your sister. And she said, it is really bad. Wow. And she said, um, you can be expecting a call from your dad because, you know, he still doesn't know that you reported him. Mm. And I mean, no sooner I hung up with her, my phone rings and it was him. Mm. And so he called me up and said, Hey, I just have some things on my chest that I need to get off. Um, can you come over to my apartment? Um, and so I went over there and wow. I mean, it was, I can't even put into words what that was like. Yeah. Um, just seeing him for the first time where that facade was starting to come down just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just so how he wasn't denying it. He wasn't trying no. to place blame somewhere else. He was owning it from the beginning. He, um, I wouldn't say owning it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, he certainly minimized everything mm-hmm. and, yeah. uh, you know, put the blame on the victims. Right. And so typical abuse you know, response. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that was my first experience with that. I yeah. mean, I had never, I'd never read anything about abusers. I mean, I had no experience whatsoever. So that was all new to me. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I ended up um, spending the night at his apartment that night, which, I mean, my wife was furious with me yeah and i, I and too. i understand yeah. <laughs> I, I mean I that, yeah you know yeah. i know um and, and so i you know i'm like it, it it's hard to put into words how many different hats i was wearing and uh, you know mm-hmm. i felt like yeah i can see that i felt like i was betraying him when when i turned him in which is silly to me now mm-hmm. but Good. <laughs> you know it's, it's what i felt at the time sure uh, which is why i think so many so many people refused 
to report mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of information to go on. I mean, there were very, very, very few details that my sister gave me. Mm. Um, I mean, nothing graphic. There was nothing, mm-hmm. um, just not a lot to go on. So, I mean, it was a lot of guessing. Mm. And Yeah, so you, know, you then, can understand why so many, especially in a church setting, and here's this leader who, you know, mm-hmm. okay, he's done maybe some bad things we don't really know, but he's done all these great things, right? So you can understand yeah. being in those shoes, but now that you've done it, now you can be a voice and say, no, you have to do this. You have to report. You, well, yeah. I'm understanding of it, but not sympathetic to it. So... You know, I, I'm understanding of church leaders who wrestle with that, you know, n- not not believing it right away or, you know, hesitating. Um, I understand it, but I'm not I'm not sympathetic to it. Yeah, I like um, that. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, there's there's no excuse for not reporting, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to protecting children. Absolutely. And from the very beginning, I mean, this was before I'd ever read anything on child abuse. And there wasn't a lot published at the time. I mean, we're talking 2011, pre-Jerry Sandusky. Mm. Um, There weren't many blogs at all. Um, There certainly weren't resources for churches that spells us all out. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, for me, it was just kind of feeling my way through it and really doing what what I felt was right. Mm Mm-hmm. And I knew I was not an investigator, so that just wasn't my job. I didn't want to investigate it. Right, um, right. <laughs> you know? I think those who want to investigate are those who just want to cover up the hardest parts, right? Because it, I can't really come to any other conclusion. Yeah, yeah. So it was smart. You let yeah. the professionals do their jobs. That's why I love what Grace does. You know, it's that. Yeah, that outside, absolutely. you know, the professionals are doing their job. We trust them to do it. And we keep out of it. <laughs> yeah. And they're really good at what they do. Absolutely. I mean, incredibly good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then, then came the next dilemma was, okay, how do we, how do we start informing family members? Because they needed to know. And I mean, I remember mom and I splitting up uh, siblings of mine. I mean, we, we literally made a checklist mm-hmm. And we wrote down, you know, who we thought would be more receptive if I called them, who would be more receptive if she called them. And, you know, it's just the things that people don't think about. Mm. Um, And it was horrific. Mm -hmm. So one by one, we had we had to call family members. Well, then, you know, you get all kinds of reactions. You get some who um, I mean, they were pleading with me not to turn them in. You know, don't don't do this. Please, please don't. It's got to be a misunderstanding. And I said, it's too, it's too late. I already did. Yeah. Um, and then we had others that, you know, some of my brothers, well, we're going to kill them. Mm-hmm. You know, we had emotions that were just all over the place. So then, yeah. Yeah. you know, you're wearing that hat of, you know, again, in a strange way, you become, I became my dad's protector, trying to keep people from, and my siblings protectors, because I was like, man, you do not want to want to go to prison for this for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm for flying off in, in, in a rage and killing him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's just, it, it, and then in the middle of that, we're a small church. I mean, we're a church of um, under a hundred and I was the only person in leadership at the time. I mean, we didn't have elders. We didn't have deacons. 
I was it. Wow. And so I had to inform the church that my dad, who was their minister for 27 years um, and who was still attending there. Yeah. I had to tell them, I had to break that news to them that, you know, not only is somebody within the church an abuser of the worst kind, but it's my father. Oh, and by the way, I don't know. I don't know if he has any victims inside the church yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how do you, how do you announce that to the church? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And I mean, I was just desperate for resources and I was, I mean, I was looking and looking and looking online and I couldn't find a single word that was written about this. And I was like, surely this isn't the first time that a church has experienced this. Yeah. Right. Right. And now, and now, the, now you know, that, we know how many are. Oh yeah. Goodness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the church was, I mean, they were really incredibly supportive, but I had to be very careful in how I, drafted the statement. I mean, I wrote a statement out mm-hmm. with the help of my wife, mm-hmm. um, which God love her for having to go through all that with me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wrote a statement basically that said, you know, there are allegations that he sexually molested minor victims. Um, we can't give you any details at this point, but we can give you enough that we know the allegations are true. So please do not rush to his side. Don't call him. Don't talk to him. Um, don't defend him. And then I had, and then I had to tell the parents within that church um, that as a parent myself, I know what every single parent in here is thinking right now. Oh and gosh. and the answer oh. is, I don't know who his victims are at this point. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was that was probably one of the most excruciating things to have to tell the church yeah Uh, because in my heart i knew there were victims in the church i just didn't know who i didn't know who they were yeah yeah um and i would find out later on that that there were in fact victims in the church young victims Mm -hmm. and and so my wife and i Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and so my wife and i had to drive to a family's home and inform them that um my dad had abused all of their daughters. Oh my gosh. And uh, I don't know. It's just there are so many different components to it. And I don't wish it on anybody. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I don't think I would have done anything differently. So in that respect, you know, it, he eventually was charged with what, 200 counts. Mm-hmm. Correct. Was sentenced to what, like 30 uh, years? 30 to 60, 30 mm-hmm. to 60 years. Mm-hmm. Yep. In yeah. state prison, and, and that that was four days before Father's Day, so that was a nice Father's Day present to all of us wow. in the family. Wow! And he has since, yeah. while he's in prison, has written letters, right, to you and your yeah. sister. Uh, he's written all of my sisters. Okay. Um, in fact, he's he's written all of my siblings. Okay. Is um, your sister able to read them or not? I. I don't know if she's ever read yeah. any of the letters. But I don't think that them. she has. You read the letters. I do. Yeah. And how has that been? Um, strange. Yeah. And it, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really hard to describe. And a lot of people, including my own wife, try to figure out like why I still visit him, why I still communicate with him. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it, it's interesting to see church people because they automatically jump to the conclusion that 
oh, this is a wonderful grace story. This is a story of redemption. And, oh, yeah. You know, don't the first, they want question, that? first they... question people ask, they're like, mm. oh, so you for well, they don't ask it. They tell me. So you've forgiven your father. <sighs> and isn't this wonderful that, you know, you're still talking to him and this is such a story mm. of redemption. Mm. Um, and I say, yeah, it's not really like that. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry to um, kill your fairy tale ending, but mm-hmm. it, that's not my relationship with my dad. Mm. Um, and so uh, trying to explain it to people, I don't know, I guess it, I just wrap it up in one word or two words. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and isn't that life here and now? Like the kingdom is not here yet. We are, you know, it's not all said and done. We have to live it. We have to live in this. We have to sit in this uneasiness, this, this filth mm-hmm. and people can't yeah. do it. People in the church don't want to do it. They want the happy ending right away, the bow on the package, you know. Mm-hmm. But but the kingdom's yeah. not here. It's here, but it's the not yet. So so here we are sitting in this, and you're able to even put words to that. I think you're able to be in the mess. You're able to visit him. You're able to read the letters, but you're also saying no. <laughs> this is not redemption. No, and, and you know the the biggest part is. From the very beginning, I was incredibly haunted by the fact that we all missed it. And I was like, you know, this absolutely this man abused and abused in our home. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did it right under our roof. He did it right in front of us. And he did it to many, 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 many victims. Right. Um, some of them hundreds of times each. And this is the man who I loved, who I respected, who... Uh, he was the first person I would call for advice. Mm-hmm. You know, all this stuff that you see with profiling people, or not really profiling, but red flags. Yeah. Um, it, it just was so inadequate. And I started picking up every single book that I could read on child sexual abuse because I wanted to understand predators. I wanted to understand my dad mostly and get inside his head. Yeah, I'm with you. And ya. see mm-hmm. one, you know, not really why he did it because I – Nobody's ever going to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really care why he did it. Mm. I wanted to know how he did it. Yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Like, how did we um, miss this? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I wanted to know what it was about him that uh, empowered him and enabled him to be able to get away with it for his entire life. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know what it was about us that made us vulnerable. That's because, good. That's good. you know, all the stuff, again, that you hear with red flags, oh, well, they target people who have broken homes and... You know, it's just, you know, the kids are wearing rags and they don't get love at home and all this stuff. Well, yeah, sometimes, but mm-hmm. usually not. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Because now um, with the Me Too movement, we hear of so many of us who were victimized that, you know, like Mary and I, no one would have ever suspected on the outside, right. you know? Right. But the abusers right. also, you never would have suspected. So they're creating these opportunities with children that, you know, the teacher's pet, the, the, the straight A student, the star athlete, sure. you know, the the kid who's absolutely winning the Bible quizzing, you know. <laughs> so then it, yeah. it's not all the vulnerable. So what do you say to that? Um, the thing that I tell people is that we're all vulnerable. Every single human being is vulnerable. That's right. And the thing about abusers is it's not about behaviors. It's not like, you know, they have this attraction to kids and they just they wrestle with it and they quote unquote fall into temptation. I've really come to dislike Ew. that term. Mm-hmm. Um, abusers don't fall into temptation. Mm-hmm. What they do is, um, you know, my research really just from um, 
I mean, reading hundreds of letters from my dad and, um, you know, partnering with, uh, with neuroscientists and, you know, really trying to understand deception, mm-hmm. um, not abusive behaviors, but understanding deception. Mm-hmm. What I found out is that it's all about just executing techniques and doing that flawlessly. The more practiced they are, the more rehearsed they are, they can spot vulnerabilities much like a magician can. Mm-hmm. You know, magicians don't come in and groom their audiences and, you know, um, lead them along and, you know, spend six months um, trying to earn respect and all that stuff. They just come in, they know what the end game is, and they just do it. Yeah. They, ex- they execute technique flawlessly because it's rehearsed. And so I started seeing these really incredibly close similarities between uh, between what was happening literally on, on the stage with magicians and what my dad was describing in his letters. Because I would ask him really pointed questions, like, how did we not see this? How did you get away with it? And he would, I mean, he would go into I'm just crazy detail. And I had this aha moment, and I was like, holy cow. And, and he started writing about abusing in plain sight right in front of us. I mean, full-on molesting his victims. Your dad was um, writing to you, telling you mm-hmm. what he did and how mm-hmm. he did it. Mm-hmm. For what yeah. reason do you think he was writing you about that? Because you were asking, um, you were trying to I, learn. I, I, I think, I think uh, secondary. The secondary reason is because I asked him. The the first reason is because he likes reliving it. Yuck! That's what I wondered. Mm-hmm. But you were I able to use it to inform it. to inform your own work and your ministry. So. Absolutely. At least there's something good that yeah. came from that sick <laughs> first primary yeah. reason. Okay, so he's telling yeah. you, yeah, how he was able to do it in plain sight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's preying on vulnerabilities, but he's also he's mapped it out already. He, you know, he was just waiting for the oh, opportunity. And, and, and if people knew how detailed how detailed their techniques are, I mean, when I say they live and breathe this, they can't not think about it. Um, I mean, every thought, everything has to do with, um, figuring out uh, what would happen if I start, if I start doing this and I face a little bit of resistance, whether it's, you know, a shrug or whether it's, um, somebody walks into the room, uh, how could I, how could I adapt in that moment? Yeah. I mean, they, they just think that way. They're wired that way, like a magician, you know? And, And I started looking at this and I was like, man, these guys, they rehearse in front of a mirror. I mean, magicians do, right? right? They rehearse in front of a mirror for hours and hours and hours and hours every single day mm-hmm. um, to where it becomes so routine that they're, they're actually bored with it. Mm-hmm. And so my dad wrote about that in the letters and he said, he's like, you know, it's really easy to abuse a kid in isolation. He's like, but you get bored with that. He said the real high comes when you can do that in front of other people and you can get away with it over and over and over again and keep that victim silent and continue to fool their parents or their, you know, their guardians or whoever it is. Mm -hmm. He said, that's where the real high comes from. I can see that, you know, thinking about the stories that, you know, we've heard of, of coaches, you know, and, you know, they Mm -hmm. get, they, they don't just groom the child, but the whole family. And I think that's, that's a bit of their story. That's the narrative they want to create is that they're fooling everybody. Right. And they're getting away yeah. with it time and time again and then moving on to the next and the next. And you know, I, I can definitely see what you're saying played out not only in my story. You know, I, I look back to my sure. abuse and think of, you know, my stepdad. There were times when 
he didn't get away with it. And the way my response was, I could almost think about how premeditated his next move would be. You know, he already yeah. knew what sure. he was going to do, what he was going to say now. That's exactly. It's and it's instant. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, so I think a lot of people think, well, you know, uh, I hear, I hear a lot of this, like, you know, we're going to screen abusers out. We're going to let them know that we take abuse seriously at our organization. And, mm. you know, they're not, they're not going to volunteer here because, right. you know, just knowing that we're serious about abuse, they're going to, they're going to run with their tail between their legs and run away. I've got news for you. <laughs> mm. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, probably more often than not, that becomes enticing for abusers. Um, I've seen it time and time again where abusers volunteer to be on the um, on the protection teams at churches. Right. They're the ones leading the charges. Mm. Um, they get excited whenever churches are like, you know, we're taking all these all these precautions. We know the red flags to look out for. And so we're going to keep an eye on people and an abuser. I mean, it's like when I was a kid, I used to salivate with my mom's homemade pickles. Oh, her homemade pickles are good. (laughs) Um, And I think about abusers and and if you really understand how their minds think, they literally salivate. Um, They hear these things and they become so enticing to them because that's just how they're wired. They're that corrupt. Mm -hmm. Um, They're that evil. I mean, it's a game to them. Yeah, I do. I think that I do think that the serial pedophiles that are out there, I, I agree. They are looking for a challenge, right? So in that regard, absolutely. you've talked a lot about and I really have loved hearing and reading some of the stuff you put out some of your content on safe churches. What does a safe church look like? And not just safe church, but you're even talking about, you know, youth organizations and, you know, maybe mm-hmm. preschools or things like that. Like, what are some of the signs? What are the things you recommend um, to become safe when we know that pedophiles are looking for a place that seems to be confident in their policies? Yeah. What would you say yeah. that we need to do to actually be safe? Boy, this is really uh, multidimensioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not just as easy as, you know, you get a one-time training and then all of a sudden you're, <laughs> you're good to go. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have to have... I mean, an organization has to have a culture, uh, a system, systematic culture mm-hmm. um, to its core, where not only is it actually safe um, for people who've been victimized to come forward, but they know who they can go to. Um, the, the reason so many victims don't speak up is because, one, they don't even know who to talk to within, within the organization. Two, they don't know how that's going to be received by the person who they think they can talk to about it. Um, and so there's that hesitation to begin with. And you're talking about something that's incredibly shameful and humiliating to talk about. And, you know, just so many different components to that. So an organization has to be a safe organization for people to speak up. Um, yes. But you also have to be crystal clear on what, what your procedure is. So, mm-hmm. Uh, like for example, what we do at our church, um, we physically have like two or three people, the two or three designated people, um, who anybody can report to no matter how young or how old you are. Mm -hmm. These are the people that you come and talk to if you have any concerns about anybody for any reason. Mm -hmm. And that's, you will not be turned away, you know, every so now and then to the church openly, publicly, 
so that it's known. Yes. Mm. Yes. But, you know, the other part of that is we also have it written into policy and written policies are absolutely 100 percent essential. Mm. You cannot have a verbal agreement, understanding a verbal culture because abusers shift that. They'll play leaders. (laughs) Uh Like you, this is a different situation. Like that's, yeah. But if it's written down, you you know. Uh Mm -hmm. And and a common response from abusers is, well, I didn't know. I didn't know that was written in a policy. I mean, I've talked to leaders who have, they have sat down and point blank told people, um, abusers, or alleged abusers, you can not violate these boundaries. These are the boundaries you are not allowed to violate. Well, there are usually two responses. The first is, well, I didn't know I wasn't allowed to do that. And two is, why are you singling me out and putting all these restrictions on me? Um, Don't you think that's unfair? The beautiful thing about a policy is it applies equally to everybody. Mm -hmm. It spells out what the boundaries are for everybody. Um, you can't have a power differential where a leader comes up and is like, well, I'm the head pastor. So, you know, I'm allowed to give kids a ride in my car after, you know, after right. church. That's good, yeah. um, no, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. A written policy applies the rules equally to everybody mm-hmm. and it applies the consequences. It spells them out and it applies those equally to everybody. So, you know, when, when something happens, when there is an incident, you can't be second guessing and saying, well, gee, what's our policy again on this? Uh, People should know. Yeah. It should be so inherent and so natural that they just know how to respond. They know what the process is. So with youth sports, a lot of times you sign your kid up for a soccer team or whatever, and you get the whole thing. You click, yes, I read the policies. (laughs) sign up register but when you attend Mm -hmm. the church you're not getting typically a list of policies so how do you communicate that is that mostly like for leadership like with meetings and staff or is that do you think it's important for all congregants to know that absolutely yeah Yeah. everybody needs to know okay your policy needs to be it needs to be written it needs to be available um a hard copy needs to be available um we have one displayed uh, in the in the back of our church, we let people know that it's there. We tell people, please, please read it. Okay. Don't actually just, you know, walk by it and let it collect dust. Actually read it and know what's in it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then we put it on, you know, we put one on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to communicate that to everybody. Yeah. It has to be communicated. That's great. But, you know, the, the other component for a safe church, too, is um, being a church that's watchful. Um. And I think about the biblical model of, um, of watchers uh, in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the watchers were people who it was their job to just sit on top of the wall. Um, I mean, that was it. They weren't the warriors. They weren't the, uh, you know, they weren't the people who were armed with swords and, you know, bows and arrows. They just watched and interpreted. And if you think about that, the importance of that. You know, if somebody's coming towards the city wall and they're non-threatening and the watcher is like, oh, my goodness, they're they're here for war that, you know, abuser, abuser, you know, and they start pointing the finger, they're going to launch a war against somebody who's a peaceful ally. Um, And that happens sometimes, unfortunately, for churches that are that are untrained. There are people who are like, oh, I think I think that person's an abuser. 
Um, well, what makes you think that? Well, they went in the bathroom and there was a kid in there and they didn't turn around and walk back out. So I know that they were probably grooming that kid. And I'm like, no, it doesn't really work that way. You know what I mean? Like you have some people who, um, I mean, they think everybody's an abuser and that's helpful. <laughs> um, but then the watchers, whenever somebody is coming and they interpret that properly as, as a threat, they warn people. Mm-hmm. And there's a system in place where they have warriors who go out and they stop that person before they ever get to the wall. Right, right. And so we, we need, need not we be need afraid to speak up as watchers. I think sometimes we're like, well, no. it's probably like you, right? we give people the benefit of the doubt. But I mean, mm-hmm. life's too short and these kids' lives are too precious to overlook those little things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think those are probably the most important components, mm-hmm. um, but having everybody on board, communicating it often, mm-hmm. um, because this isn't something that you're, you know, again, you're not trained and then you're like, Oh, I know, I know what to do. Right. Um, I live and breathe this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I still, I mean, just about every single day I need to talk to people and, and evaluate and say, what else do I need to learn? Right. Um, what am I doing that's that's ineffective? What mm-hmm. am I doing that's inefficient? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we get better? How do we get smarter? That's good. Yeah, because it's so important and vital to keep up on this stuff. And I think the other side of it is, so then something does come forward in a church. You know, mm-hmm. now you have an opportunity to create a safe place for other future victims to find their voice. So churches who are transparent, who, you know, share the details, don't hide it, don't keep it as a separate conversation that's not being talked about, but are, but you talk about it openly and you say, you know, we're not tolerating abuse here and this is what has happened. This is what we're doing with it. This is the outside organization who's coming in to investigate. Um, I think that that also breeds, breeds a safe environment for people to come forward because, you know, as soon as what I've noticed, and I'm, I'm sure you agree, but when a church would hide it or would say, we're dealing with it, you know, we, we're not sure the, mm-hmm. the truth, then all the other victims of that one person feel like, ooh, I'm not going to say anything yet. I'm going to wait this out. Mm-hmm. But when a church says, mm-hmm. or an organization or a school, when they come out and they say, this is what has been um, disclosed. This is the person who it was. This is everything we know about it. And this is where yeah. we're going forward. And we do not tolerate this. And if there are other victims out there, we need to know who you are so we can stand, you know, with you. That makes a, a victim feel like, okay, I have a voice here. And if I tell this is going to matter and it's going to mm-hmm. be worth it. And so I think that for me, has been something that I've always wanted churches to understand the importance of that, the transparency um, before, you know, the public, not just their church, but in their community. That feels well, like think- for years, I mean, I've been speaking for 16 years now. And when I first started out mm-hmm. in early 2000s, so much pushback from Christian organizations, Christian schools, because they didn't want to be talking about this issue with their students. They didn't want to have me come in and talk in their little chapel because that might tell the community there's a problem here. 
But I'm like, no, yeah. like talking yeah. about it makes you look healthy. It shows that right? you care. It shows that you're a safe place. It doesn't mm-hmm. show that you're not safe. So it's been such a weird kind of like backwards way of thinking that I think has been such a passion of mine to shake the church um, and Christian schools, especially to understand more. You know what I mean, Jimmy? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's been a challenge because, you know, I, I mean, I'm not exactly um, well-liked by by a lot of churches, um, but there are churches who are like, there are churches that, that really appreciate the work that, mm. that I do and, you know, all the other advocates. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I get really encouraged by that, but then other ones, Good. they're like, well, you just hate the church. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm probably like the poster child of somebody who has demonstrated that I love, like, I love the church. I'm still there. I still pastor a church, you know, (laughs) if I hated the church, why in the world would I stay uh, inside of, you know, structured, institutionalized religion? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hated the church. I love the church and I hate, 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 hate seeing what's been done to it by secrecy by um, people who ravage the church and the mm-hmm. church embraces those people. Right. They call them brothers. Oh, this, you know, this brother, everybody's welcome regardless of what they've done. <laughs> I'm like, that, that's, that's the most anti-biblical message that we can possibly have. Yes. Um, can you preach on that a little bit? And I'm not joking, Jimmy, because <laughs> I just read the article from Dr. Diane Langberg, who we've also had on our podcast in the past, an amazing, uh-huh. amazing podcast. She does great work. Um, but I'm sure you read it of where she talked about, she recommends to churches to not allow abusers to come right. and be a part of their weekend yes. attendance. I, I've been saying that. I mean, from the first time I ever started a blog eight years ago, Mm. I've been saying that. Mm -hmm. And And that's hard. It's hard for people to hear. And I posted that uh and I had some backlash from people because they don't, they want to give grace to everybody. And they, Uh I mean, none of them are survivors who want to push back, so they don't get it. But I mean, what do you say to that? I think they need to understand. And and we'll give a little bit more what Dr. Langberg said that we can give to survivors, but go ahead with what your thoughts were. Yeah. In a, in a nutshell, um, I ask people how John the Baptist introduced Jesus. 100% of the time people say, behold, the lamb of God, right? Yeah. I mean, that's always a hundred percent of the time, behold, the lamb of God. I'm like, no, that's not how John the Baptist introduced Jesus. When John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God, which is recorded in the gospel of John. Um, he was saying that to Jesus, not the crowd. He saw Jesus coming and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist introduced Jesus to the crowd, he starts off the very first thing out of his mouth is, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come from the, from the wrath that's to come? And then the next thing he says is, um, already the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and he will cut down every tree that doesn't bear good fruit and throw it into the fire. I'm like, whoa. That's an interesting introduction to Jesus, to the Messiah, um, which is incredibly consistent with all of the scriptures. Um, Then he goes on, you know, he says, uh, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. You know, it's uh, uh, what are the evidences of your repentance? And then he says, um, you know, Jesus's winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor. He's going to gather the wheat together into the barn and the chaff. He's going to throw it into the fire. He's talking about people. 
Mm-hmm. And he's talking about what Jesus is going to do to people. Um, and so there's this distinction all throughout the Bible. I mean, from cover to cover between people who legitimately struggle with sin. I mean, all of us know what that's like. Mm-hmm. All of us do. Um, but there's a clear distinction between people who wrestle with sin and people who at their very core are deceivers and liars and manipulators. And they do it because that's who they are. It's not just what they do. It's who they are, mm-hmm. which is why there's a dis- distinction in scripture between sheep and wolves over and over and over again. Jesus never talks about converting wolves to Christianity. He's talking about people who are already at, at their very core. They're, they're wolves. Um, they're ravenous. They destroy people. They derive pleasure in destroying people. It's not people who mess up and ruin other people's lives, right? Because that happens. You have people who do self-destructive stuff, drug addictions, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And it hurts other people's lives. It mm-hmm. can ruin other people's yeah. lives. But here's the difference. Those people aren't doing it because they derive pleasure in ruining other people's lives. They're not yeah. like, man, I can't wait to see whose life I can ruin now. Mm-hmm. Whereas abusers, they masquerade. I mean, why go to that much trouble and pretend to be somebody who's godly? Why go to church? Why preach? Why be an elder? Why be a deacon? Mm. Why go to that much effort except that you enjoy doing it? Mm-hmm. I mean, they could, they, could, they could go and find kids. And, you know, there are plenty of predators who they're non-religious and they go out and, you know, they molest kids and, right. you know, uh, they wreck their lives. But why? Why these religious people? Why go to that much effort to pretend, hmm. um, except that at their very core, they're ravenous wolves? And Peter talks about it in Second Peter chapter 2, and he never talks about uh, you know, bringing people in, giving them more community. He never speaks highly of them. And by the way, in Second Peter 2, he's talking about sexual predators. And you know, Peter calls them waterless mists. He calls them... Um, he says they're they're like dogs who keep returning to the vomit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Peter is really colorful, but he said uh, in Second Peter two, he said, you know, they uh, they delight in uh, doing these things uh, while they feast with you in broad daylight. They do them. Paul says that deceivers and evil people go from bad to worse. Second Timothy chapter three verse thirteen. Earlier in in chapter three, Paul says, "Have nothing to do with these people." these deceivers. Mm -hmm. He's not talking about sinful people. He's talking about people who are deceivers, who derive pleasure from ruining, wrecking other people's lives. Mm -hmm. They don't change. It's who they are. Yeah, And we know that most sexual abusers don't have one victim. So you're seeing that, how it's it's this thing that is playing out over and over and over again. Yeah. The secular world gets it. And if you read, I mean, any of the literature that's written by the top professionals, Anna Salter, mm-hmm. um, I mean, on and on and on, Gene Abel, you have, um, oh, I could name a dozen of them who all say the same thing. They're like, pedophiles do not change. They cannot change. They will not change. But then you get Christians who are like, oh, my goodness, that's, that's, not, that's not the God who we serve. Mm-hmm. And my response is, then explain, explain the flood. I mean, explain Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. Mm. In fact, explain Abraham's dialogue with God. He's pleading with God to save Sodom and Gomorrah. He's begging, begging God not to destroy it. Mm. 
And God finally says, you know, for the sake of one righteous person, I won't destroy this. I won't destroy this city. And then God destroys it. Well, if God is this God who, you know, just offers grace to everybody, no matter what they've done and everybody's capable of change, then he's a pretty twisted God mm-hmm. because he destroyed, he annihilated Sodom and Gomorrah and he annihilated mankind mm-hmm. in the great flood. Mm-hmm. But if you understand something about the nature of people and that people can become wicked, they can become mm-hmm. um, really twisted in their thinking and they can, they can derive pleasure and, and, and become evil to their core then those stories begin to make sense. And then all the passages where Jesus talks about protecting people mm-hmm. and laying down at the gate, you know, in John chapter 10, the good shepherd lays his life down. He lays down at the gate and keeps the wolves out. Well, that implies what? That they're actually wolves. Right. And what's more important, maybe they're not wolves, so we should always bring them in and pad their life and make it okay for them to be here or protect the the sheep, protect the little babies, protect the vulnerable ones, you know? Right. And, and then sure. like Diane Langberg says, we can bring church to the wolves. We can have certain people who are brave enough and have been called to maybe bring church to them, but not subject those within our congregation who, you know, need to feel safe and to be fed. Yeah. I think that's well, and I think what you'll find pretty quickly is the wolves don't, they won't allow you to bring church to them because why they're not interested in religion in the first place. Mm. They'll, they'll shame you. They'll guilt you. I mean, I've seen it over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll say, well, you don't believe in grace and you don't believe in forgiveness. You don't believe in mercy. And, you know, you're treating me this is a common saying that they say, why do you treat me as a second class citizen? Yeah. Right. And I'm like, That's wait a second. You raped, you raped our children. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. <laughs> and now you're playing, you're playing the sympathy card. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't right. work. So, well, that's yeah, interesting you when you think about then. So then you call it out and you say, well, you know, you're not welcome to um, be in this community um, in this building at this time with all these vulnerable ones, we'll bring church to mm-hmm. you and we will love you and we'll meet with you. And when they say, then, like you said, they don't want that. Well, isn't that a huge mm-hmm. sign? <laughs> yeah. That they, they, don't want, they, don't want, they don't want religion. Yes. They don't want God. What they want is access to people. Absolutely. And that's always interesting. That's to me. very telling. You know, like yeah. there's, yeah, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to, you have to sit inside of a corporate worship, especially when there are kids present, in order mm-hmm. for your worship to be to be valid. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing that even hints at that. No, no. And yet they'll tell you, if you don't let me in here, if you don't let me, you know, in the midst of everybody else who's who's part of this body, mm-hmm. um, you're not really a Christian. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I've had people say, well, what's your response when people say that? Um, two words: get out. Mm-hmm. That's very bold. I mean, we need to unapologetically stop letting people bully us, especially people who are known abusers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like they thought they thought thoughts and you know wrestled with thoughts. They actually did it. They actually followed through. They actually hurt these little babies mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. That's not accidental. No, no. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. We just have to call it um, for what it is, and. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah, be there'll, okay there'll with be that. plenty of people who don't like that, but yes, <laughs> we do it anyway. That's yeah, <laughs> well, put on you for that. And I think too, you know, we've had a few therapists of perpetrators on our podcast and it's been very enlightening as well and thinking you know that they're they do have hope for some for change and if that is the case i think that person would sit under and humble themselves to accept what they're hearing you know no you are not absolutely able to come and worship in this setting with us but we'll bring it to you there will never be children present this 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 and they if they are really able to change and and to work on themselves they would do everything they could to set them up for success and to protect everybody to make everyone feel safe they would humble themselves under that correction self-awareness yeah and knowing it's like an alcoholic saying actually i can't attend that party because there's alcohol there and i don't even want to have that temptation in front of me Mm -hmm. so yeah it's them saying i need to be to protect everyone around me because i think we can all say on some level we don't trust ourselves Mm -hmm. because we're human we're flawed we're broken we're messed up so it is like you said it's putting that safeguard up to protect everybody Mm -hmm. um and i i think if they're at that place and that's a different story using the word heal though no i don't agree with that but at mm-hmm. least trying to make that change happen absolutely yeah, yeah. and so yeah. It, it gives the church the ability to say okay this is how we go about it because this is our policy and then the response of that human being tells you exactly where they're at yeah. in my opinion yep well i always tell people if, if you know i tell church leaders if you really want to find out this um who this person really is uh-huh don't talk to them Talk to the talk to the corrections officers who are in the worship service at the prison where this person went. You'll find out really quickly mm-hmm. who this person really is. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, every chaplain who I talk to at, at different prisons. I mean, I've done tons of interviews at prisons. Um, I've visited lots of prisons, and they'll all say the same thing. They're like, you know, ninety percent of the worship services in prisons are made up of sex offenders, um, usually pedophile sex offenders. Um, they say that they are the nicest people and um, they're the ones who really toy with volunteers when the volunteers come in and they, they manipulate them like crazy. And I still, I mean, I remember very vividly my last visit with my dad in prison and he was laughing about these different volunteer groups that come in. And he was like, I really shouldn't, he's like, I really shouldn't be making fun of them, but he's like, I just don't know how people can be so stupid and naive. He's like, we play them like a fiddle from the time they come in here. And he's like, I feel a little bit bad because he said they're, you know, they're genuinely good people who believe in the best in other people, but he's like, they're so easy to manipulate. And, uh, he told me how the corrections officers, um, they really dislike volunteers, the Christian volunteers who come in and volunteer at the prisons. Um, and the corrections officers don't like them because they're so naive because they come in and they're like, Oh my goodness, you are, you're just so wonderful. And you know, they're singing the praises of all these inmates and you know, they're holding hands and, you know, singing their songs to Jesus and talking about how wonderful God's mercy is. And meanwhile, these pedophiles are just playing them and they're laughing. They're mocking them. I know because my dad sat there and mocked them to me. And I used to do prison. Um, I used to do volunteer work when I was in high school. Um, I volunteered at a chaplain and I mean, I can tell you from doing that work, these guys love manipulating volunteers that come in. Mm. So my thing is, uh, uh, talk to the corrections officers, talk to the chaplains at, at the prison, find out 
how these people behaved when they were in prison. Mm. Yeah. You'll, you'll get a lot different story. Yeah. I'll guarantee it. I have a quick question just because since you brought this back up about visiting your dad and stuff, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in your sister's shoes. And um, I was curious, number one, you know, what your heart and your thought and your kind of reasoning was behind still visiting your dad, because I'm sure not the rest of your siblings are, maybe some of them, but not all of them. And then for your sister, because I remember when I told my brother what had happened to me and I got the response that I deserved and I should have had, and I'm trying to put myself in your sister's shoes and thinking, Mm -hmm. you know, my brother's visiting my abuser. So how did your sister respond? And then also what's your reasoning behind visiting your dad? Yeah, I'm very open with my family. I'm very transparent. I say, look, I'm just to be crystal clear. I'm not there to coddle him. I'm not there uh, because I feel sympathy for him. Yeah. Um, you know that they know, they know, um, basically the gist of of why I go there. You know, and part of that is he's still my dad. Um, yeah. But that's a you know a very small part of that. Right. Um, a big part is. I really want to understand. I really want to understand how he did it, how he got away with it. And when I go up there, um, I mean, it's, it's so bizarre because I, you know, again, I live and breathe this stuff and within 30 minutes of talking to him, um, he's really manipulating me and trying to get past my, my wall. And it's, it's so hard to describe what this is like um, because there's manipulation going on both of our parts and he likes it. And, you know, uh, a couple of times ago I visited him and he leaned in and he said real quiet, he goes, you know, I've prided myself my whole life in trying to get inside people's heads and really being 10 steps ahead of them. And he said, nobody's been able to get inside of my head mm-hmm. and nobody's ever been able to walk circles around me. And then he sits back and he smiles and he said, until now, And he said, and these are his words. And he said, he smiled real big and he said, and it pisses me off. (laughs) And I just smiled, I smiled right back. And I said, I will take that as the highest compliment that I've ever gotten from you. Wow. So that's our relationship. Yeah. Um, And and my, my siblings know I'm not going there and, you know, I'm, I'm not like melting like butter in front of him and saying, oh my goodness, how horrible. Um, They know it's a really complicated relationship when I go up there and that, um, (laughs) I am not throwing my siblings under the bus. They know that I communicate that with them really clearly. Mm -hmm. So specifically, how does your sister feel? Like the first time you even said, I'm going to read the letters, I'm going to call him, I'm going to go visit. What was her response? Um, she didn't really say much about it. Um, but she doesn't, she doesn't talk much either. (laughs) She's, she's an introvert, but yeah, she's, um, I mean, she's let me know that she's perfectly okay with it. Wow. Um, She's a bigger person than me, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Because, I mean, I I admire her response, and I know you said she's quiet and everything, but I'll be honest, and I completely understand what you're saying with visiting and trying to get in his head to understand because you're on a mission to protect others, and I I think that's incredible. But I I think as the little sister and my big brother, like, unless he said I'm going there to murder him, (laughs) I don't think Mm -hmm. I could ever get over, just me personally, get over my brother going to see my abuser. Just in all honesty and transparency for me personally. But again, I understand why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be very, very different um, if she felt that I had an ounce of sympathy when I was going there. For sure. I think it would be very different. Absolutely. Um, Mm. But, you know, there's 
there's an understanding with all of our family that, I mean, none of us are going to let our walls down and, you know, uh, be sympathetic towards him. Good. I mean, yeah. he worked very hard to get where he's at and, uh, we're all glad that he is where he is. Yeah, absolutely. Goodness. Wow. So what do you do to take care of yourself, Jimmy? You're, like you said, you've always worn a lot of hats and, you know, you're pastoring and you're, you're doing all of this, and, yeah. you know, and you're walking in the snow and your sandals. Yep. I mean, what is that even about? <laughs> <laughs> is I, that uh, your self-care? Like torturing yourself? It, it I, I've noticed yeah. over the years yeah. of following you that you enjoy <laughs> laying in snow in your swim trunks. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're proud so, of this thing that you have going. Can you tell us a little bit about am, that? that but, is, <laughs> yep. That is my, that is my therapy. That's my self-care. Um, and that actually started. It's, cry- it cry- is, it's cryotherapy. cryotherapy. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Huh, so yeah, that actually started, there was a tragic thing that happened um, five years ago. Uh, my oldest brother died at the age of 42. Oh, my. He had a massive heart attack. Uh, my youngest was nine days old. Oh, and, um, you know, my brother, Mike, um, he was home with his three kids. My sister-in-law was at work and, uh, said he didn't feel good. He was going to take a shower. Then he just, he just fell over, uh, right in front of my then 15 year old nephew. And, um, I, you know, I hate exercise. (laughs) Um, and that was just for us, that was another component of pain it was another ripple in the already ever growing tidal wave of ripple effects, um, in the aftermath of my abuse, mm-hmm. uh, my dad's abuse rather. Um, I was the one who contacted the prison, uh, to let my dad know that my brother had died. So that, you know, again, just a weird position to be in. I was the one who preached my brother's funeral. Um, and, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to leave my kids behind. Um, you know, we, and heart disease runs in our family. So I love the cold. Um, I hate exercise. And I just started researching and was like, okay, are there any cardio benefits to jumping in snow drifts wow. <laughs> in my swim shorts? <laughs> so sure enough, um, there are incredible benefits to it. And um, like really incredible cardio benefits. So huh. I started doing it. And like the response was so funny because at first people hated my guts. They were like, you're a bit like I had moms who would walk by. I'd be wearing T-shirt and shorts. You know, it's snowing and blowing outside and we're walking through town. And I got reamed out by this lady. She's like, you're a bad example. You're a bad parent. Oh. I was like, thank you very little. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it just kind of became this funny thing i just was more determined the, the more angry people got mm. the more i was like you know i'm just gonna start posting stuff on social media <laughs> well then it became like this silly thing and yeah um you know like all the people who are like oh, i hate winter rah, rah, rah. i'm like nah, actually winter is actually it's a lot of fun get your kids outside go play in it go have fun with it <laughs> be that safe funny. <laughs> so yep that's kind of my yeah 
my therapy, okay. my way to unwind. That's interesting. <laughs> I don't know anyone else that does that. We've covered a lot of topics. <laughs> we really have. I mean, a lot. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. You are a unique bird over there in Pennsylvania, but I'm really grateful our paths crossed, Jimmy, and uh, I really hope they do again. Likewise. Yeah, I'm really grateful for your voice and, and really just how you've believed, stood by your sister and all of us as survivors. Um, it, it means the world to us. So thank you. Keep speaking out. Keep doing your research. Absolutely. Keep educating all of us. And um, yeah, thank you for your leadership. Thank you, too. <laughs> and you have your own podcast. So we definitely want our listeners to tune in. Um, I know you've put out a lot of great topics, things that I think many of our followers could could really benefit from hearing. So could you share how people could get in touch with you or find your resources? Yeah. Um, easiest way is either my website, which is just my name, jimmyhinton.org, or my mom's website, findingahealingplace.com. Or you can just go to your favorite podcast platform and either type in my name or my mom's name, Clara Hinton. And the podcast is the Speaking Out on Sex Abuse podcast. So yeah, we just talk about everything related to sex abuse and um, really try to make it a helpful resource for people. Instead of just talking about it, we, we want that to be a good resource. Yeah. And I mean, we, we interview a lot of um, really cool people. We, we dig in pretty deep into the topic. So mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jimmy. This yes, was thank you. really, Absolutely. really good. Thank you both. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked. Even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org. 